Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host... Patrick Green, recovering from COVID, but yes. uh, but here... Finally, and Patrick got fucking COVID. Thank I did God. finally get it. And you know what? I, now I have an excuse because if I screw things up in this episode and get some angry messages about it, uh, it's uh, it's brain fog. So yep. I'm gonna I'm gonna ride that horse while I got it. Ride that horse. Ride that fucking horse. <laughs> I'm gonna ride that horse. And you're connecting from England right now. How are you I doing? I am. I am. I'm in jolly old England. I'm here for another week and a half, uh, which will be about three weeks total. I've had a great time. Next couple of days are low key. Then I'm headed to London, um, and all sorts of things. It's fantastic. What a great trip. It's been a great trip. Yeah. I'm um, to come home though, too. Like there's just some things going on that I'm excited about and I've got a lot more travel planned. So good. Yeah. It's always nice to come home again too, you know? Indeed. Um, speaking of home, I don't know this, this transition is not going to work brain fog. Uh, but we have a bunch of new patrons to give shout outs to, and I'm going to do it right now at the beginning of the episode with one warning first not warning one invitation first which is to say that we are right now at 99 patrons 99 so if you are listening to this and you've been considering joining or not if you join right now our patreon you might be the 100th patron it's not like you're going to get a bonus prize or something but you know you're going to get a big shout out because that is a really (laughs) cool milestone to hit so if you're considering uh doing that make sure you head over to bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support or go to patreon.com slash perfect organism again the show's share an account and uh without further ado here's everybody we've gotten in the last couple of weeks alone we have todd norman alexander enzenhofer greg latore yates tony q Nick Carmichael, Mario Benvenuto, and Marshall A. Lewis, who just joined a couple days ago. Thank you just so much to everybody who's on board. Yes, thank you so much. Just what we've been able to do. Um, if you're fans of Perfect Organism, we've just had a complete rebrand of our logo and yeah. everything, which is something Patrick and I and Christian worked on for a while. But that was in part paid for by Patreon. So we are kind of coming up with a whole new thing because of Patreon. So thank you guys. Yes. And it actually features the work of a patron, which was somewhat coincidental, but it's because, uh, you know, we, we know each other through the shows that we were able to, to work together, which is really cool. Yeah. And that patron uh, is Jason Judah. Thank you, Jason. Jason Judah. Yeah. Who also did our 40th anniversary Blade Runner shirt, which you can still get, even though it's technically the 41st year now, it's still available uh, on our website and on uh, T public. Anyway, without further ado, Today, we are returning to a format that we just had a couple weeks ago, which went over really well. We got some very interesting listener feedback. And I want to say at the beginning, because Jamie's traveling and I'm sick, we're going to keep this a little bit shorter today, but we've gotten a lot of really interesting listener feedback. So next time we have a little bit more time, we definitely want to get into some of that and share some things. Uh, But thank you for all the messages and all of the ideas you've been for both of the shows lately. I feel like we've been getting a lot of really cool Mm -hmm. thoughts from people. Yes, yes. There's so much. I mean, there's... 
I think we should do a, a feedback show based off anatomy yeah. scene. What other yeah, people think. Maybe having one of those people on there who yeah. disagrees with both of us to see how that goes. I think it would be a great idea. Totally, yeah. And uh, so, so we're returning to that today with another iconic scene from Blade Runner, which is early on in the film, and it's uh, Deckard interviewing Rachel for her VK test. Mm. So, Jamie, you want to kind of bring us into this? So this follows the scene we just had an anatomy of a scene discussion on, which was Bryant and Deckard. Deckard is then sent to the Tyrell Corporation to interview their Nexus 6, supposedly, which is Rachel. But Deckard does not know who this is. He has no idea who he's going to meet. So I thought it was a great segue into this discussion, post our last discussion, because I have questions going in right away. Why did Tyrell tell the LAPD that there's another nexus there? What was the reason for that? That's my first question. Why is Deckard sent over there? Why would they out themselves at the same time if it's illegal, but Tyrell is the manufacturer, why would it be illegal? Because remember later on, Bryant says, no, you have another replicate you need to you need to retire, which is Rachel. Why would they retire Rachel if Tyrell, the manufacturer, her made her? Those are my questions right away. Right away. It's a fascinating scene. There's a lot to it. Do you like our owl? It's artificial? Of course it is. Must be expensive. Very. I'm Rachel. Deckard. Yeah, there is a lot to it. And I guess before we even get into those questions, a couple things, like when I think of that scene, a couple things I want to kind of throw out there. One is it really starts with the owl, which is another iconic mm. symbol in Blade Runner that runs throughout. It's the first time, as far as my brain fog can remember, that we see an animal in the film because we haven't seen Zora's snake yet. So that really, you know, at the first time we're watching Blade Runner, we really don't know what we're seeing. And then, of course, the questions that are then posed to both, actually, it's funny. Rachel poses a question to Deckard first, right? It's not in a formal VK test, but she asks him if he likes the owl, which is kind of interesting. And then he asks her a series of questions that are almost all related in some way to animals, too. So there's like this huge animal undercurrent going on during this whole thing. Uh, of course, there's a steel or metal sculpture of an eagle right next to Rachel as she's saying that to him. The visuals are very, very uh, interesting there. And of course, it also is, it's the first time we see the interior set for uh, Tyrell's headquarters, mm. which was astonishing. And I hope we get to talk a little more about that today. It was the first thing shot for the film. It was shot, I believe, in March of 1982. So it's very, very, very early on. And they built this entire set at Warner Brothers that was, uh, I think, 80 feet by 80 feet, if I remember from Future Noir correctly. Just this gigantic, Paul Salmon, Future Noir, by the way, this gigantic gigantic set that they had scouted locations for all over the place and they couldn't get the right feel. And so you have this expansive set with all of this open space in it, looking out over a city that is cluttered and where nobody can move around. So I'm throwing that all out there at the beginning just to talk about visually some of the things that arrest me so much. Of course, there's the lighting, which I'm sure we'll get to, the use of chiaroscuro and shadow. Um, and of course, it's the first time we see Rachel, who goes on to become one of the most significant characters in all of Blade Runner. And uh, and we're walking into the situation in Deckard's headspace, which, as you mentioned, is one that's really 
bewildered, right? Like this is another sequence right after the Bryant sequence where Deckard seems, he does a lot of what, what, what? <laughs> a lot of his facial expressions where he seems clearly confused about what's going on. Of course, Tyrell, when Tyrell is telling Deckard about uh, creating the cushion or the pillow for, you know, the experience to sit on, Deckard's like, wait, wait, memories? What? He's once again, very confused by everything that's happening. Mm. And this leads back to what we were talking about last time. That could be because he's been out of the game for a while, or it could be because uh, he's a replicant himself, or it could be for many other reasons. But uh, I just wanted to kind of spew all that at the beginning, because that's kind of where my where my head is. It's a beautiful sequence. It really, really is. It's beautiful. It's mysterious. It's like, there's there's kind of double questions going on. There's the questions that Deckard is asking Rachel, but there's the questions that we're asking, what is this? What's happening here? And there's another question posed before any of that begins, which is, have you ever retired a human by mistake? That's the right. first question she asks Deckard. And then he goes, no. And then she goes in that, in your position, that is a risk, right? So, which is a curious question for her to ask. Why would Rachel ask that question? What would inspire her to to ask that question? Which gets to like, well, what if he makes a mistake? What happens if he makes a mistake? That's, that's, what do you think about that question? I think it's, it's a forming an interesting parallelism with some of the things that Roy asks of him towards the end, or at least shows him towards the end, mm-hmm. where you have this replicant character teaching a character who is not overtly at least a replicant um, about very human things that, that he had been burying within himself, right? Because you know that earlier in his career, I'm sure Deckard struggled with that so much. I'm, I'm sure, I'm somewhat, I'm sure that he had moments of doubt. I'm sure that he has probably buried a lot of those moments, whether that be through alcohol or through experience or through, you know, denialism. It's probably something that has been lingering within him for a while. And Rachel being the one to ask it is a really destabilizing moment for mm. Deckard because he's never been in this position. Like, that's something that I think is brilliant about this scene, right? We have a VK test in the beginning of the film, of course, right, with Holden and Leon, which goes the way that VK tests typically would have gone, you would imagine, although not hopefully not as violently as that. But with this one, from the beginning, like, the replicant is asking questions of the person who's administering it, which I guess Leon does too, but Rachel's questions are much more uh, nuanced and interesting. And so he's kind of caught off guard by that, and then I think uh, I think it's interesting because it creates a foil for him where he sees his own humanity reflected in something that he keeps dehumanizing, right? He refers to Rachel as it, right? How can it not know what it is? Like, uh, but but that is being counteracted by her being very human with him. I think mm. yes, and it reminds me of another scene in 2049 where Love says to King, "It's nice being asked personal questions." It makes one feel desired. That's the first thing Rachel does. I mean, it's kind of a person. It is a very personal question. Have you ever made a mistake? Have you killed a person by mistake? And which that scene in 2049 would make a great anatomy of a scene because you have two replicants kind of dancing with each other. So we'll get to that at, one, at some point in the future. But I, I, you're right about that question destabilizing Deckard. It destabilizes everything. So when he sits down with her, he's kind of already uncomfortable. And clearly, she's asking him a personal question, which replicants wouldn't do. From what I know, from at least the replicants in 2019, there are no personal questions. They're just learning. Rachel has poise and focus and emotional maturity on the outset. So there's nothing in about her that would clue 
deckered into, okay, this is not a replicant. He has no idea who he's talking to. Oh, yeah. And I think that's, I think that is at the heart of why Tyrell asks, asks the LAPD to send a Blade Runner over in the first place, right? It's, it's basically a tech demo so he can test out if this new Nexus 7 technology works. It seems you feel our work is not a benefit to the public. Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. If they're a benefit, it's not my problem. May I ask you a personal question? Sure. Have you ever retired a human by mistake? No. But in your position, that is a risk. Is this to be an empathy test? Capillary dilation of the so-called blush response? Fluctuation of the pupil? Involuntary dilation of the iris? We call it void comp for short. It is interesting, though, that it's it's happening in the context of being, you know, illegal and that that becomes a problem later on, like that he's asked to go retire this replicant. Um, I'm, yeah, I, I do want to make sure we circle back around to that because I'm sort of confused about what's happening behind the scenes between these two things, like why she becomes then a target for him. Uh, because the LAPD knows, like, they send him there to do this interview, like they know what's going on, clearly. Um yeah, it's interesting. Also, Ty, this is the first time, of course, we see Tyrell, the legendary Joe Turkle. Uh, and he, you know, the first time we see him, right, he emerges out of the shadows in the back of the room, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And he comes out and his glasses, are, of course, are really obscuring his vision. So he just has these like monstrous owl shining eyes that kind of reflect the, the same way the owls did. And um, yeah, there's that whole element too, that Deckard is being studied, right? This is something that, and this, of course, not even to bring up the Decarep conversation, because you can look at it very much through that as well. This could be a tech demonstration for both of these models, if he's a replicant, right? Like this could be Tyrell in cahoots with the LAPD testing out whether these things are working appropriately. That's mm -hmm. a very different interpretation of the film, which, you know, we don't need to get into. But if Deckard is a human, he really is being, which I think he is, he really is being studied by Tyrell in this moment, the same way that Rachel is. I mean, Tyrell seems really excited to learn how many questions it typically takes, right? Like 20, 30 cross-reference. He's like, oh, how many did it take you? It took over 100, right? He's very excited about that because it means that this thing is working. But it also means, perhaps, that the LAPD's blade running uh, technology is not up to where the LAPD was hoping it would be. Mm. And for somebody like Tyrell, that's a really good thing because he's the one manufacturing these replicants. And so it could be that now he's outpacing the LAPD's ability to keep up with him and his technology, mm -hmm. which is something I never considered until we just were talking about it. Yeah. I mean, the whole mantra for the Tyrell Corporation in terms of replicants is more human than human. So what really happened is, well, here's a question. Why didn't Deckard stop and say, I need another subject. 130 ref cross-referenced questions. He went that far to find out that she is a replicant. I'm surprised they didn't do something where he stops and says, I've asked her 45 questions. Do you have an actual replicant that I can talk to? Who can I talk to? But he kept going and going and going. So, and you see Tyrell, as you mentioned, standing there kind of observing, like I've done it. He can't tell. He can't tell that this is a replicant, which is curious. But again, and I don't mean to bring up 2049 because that's a whole other conversation. And obviously this film existed before. But this whole interaction with Rachel is suspect to me. 
because it does seem like a setup based purely only in what we've seen with Bryant and this him going to Tyrell's. It seems suspicious. Why is he there? Why would he want them there? Like the LAPD and Tyrell have been talking and they're like, okay, we're going to do this thing. Send me a Blade Runner. Let's see what we can do. It just, it's odd to me. What about you? Yeah, I agree. It is odd. And it also is diverting a lot from the film noir framework in which it takes place. At least in my experience, a lot of noir that I've seen from like the 50s and 60s and 40s, like to me, it's more of a shaggy dog thing where you uncover one clue, which kind of leads you to another clue. And that clue throws you off, but you go to another one and then you have a weird conversation that tips you off that something might be up. There could be a drop happening at the docks. And so you got to, but with this one, Deckard is not doing very much detective work outside of course of the whole Zora scale thing. Like He's basically just being sent places by people who know more information than he does and then going and learning more perhaps about what those people know and then being sent to the next location. So it's almost like he's being, yeah, there is almost like an aspect of he's being studied, like he's being, like this is some sort of a test for him. Mm. And I can hear people who hate the Decorap conversation and me being one of them getting angry that we're even thinking about that. But there is something really, it's just strange. It's, it's weird that this guy who was so venerated as this legendary Blade Runner, which we know from the way he's addressed in the LAPD headquarters, that he goes on to, to that he, he basically has just no clue of what's going on. He doesn't know what replicants are capable of this new technology. Of course, he wouldn't know about if it was entirely in house, but even then, it's like he's, I don't know, he's, he's, so, he's so mystified by it. Um, and you're right. Why didn't he stop? Like, why didn't he stop the test? I guess maybe because, no, actually, no, that, that's a good question. I guess maybe it's because he was told by Bryant that he was going there to do this, and that's why. But at the same time, you would think that Rachel had passed it because she went orders of, not orders of magnitude, but she went three or four times farther along than anybody else who was a replicant ever had. Mm. So why did he keep going and also like her answers are so interesting too that's something else that i i think is is easy to overlook the way that she answers his questions is so playful and and confident you know what i mean like there's uh, almost a sense of humor to it yeah mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there's one that's literally the one about the lesbian like that's just straight up funny but even the other ones she just seems very much like 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 why are you wasting my time I'm like yeah of course i killed a wasp like what are you, what are you talking about there's this really interesting energy going on there. And so you have like a few layers, right? You have like the the actual, the narrative layer, which is that he's investigating this replicant and learning about, you know, where the Nexus models are. And then you have this emotional layer because you have Deckard and Rachel forming this connection, right? Which may or may not be intimate or in love, but like they have some kind of a connection between them that emerges during this void conf test, which is pretty interesting. And one would assume rare, because it's not typically a, a scenario where people fall in love with each other, right? And then you have a third layer, which is Deckard starting to question the nature of what he does for at least we, what we know the first time, where he starts to think of his role differently because of this interaction. And you have all of these layers playing out against this backdrop that is also really just beautiful and evocative, and the score is so beautiful. And it's like, it's just really a complete artwork, you know? Is this to be an empathy test? Capillary dilation of the so-called blush response, fluctuation of the pupil, involuntary dilation of the iris. We call it Voight-Kampf for short. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Terrell. 
Demonstrate it. I want to see it work. Where's the subject? I want to see it work on a person. I want to see a negative before I provide you with a positive. What's that going to prove? Indulge me. On you? Try her. To the point that you're making about the way Rachel is answering these questions. How was she answering them? Okay, there's a wasp crawling on your arm. She'd kill it. Why? Because she know the wasp is dangerous to her. Why would she know that? Because humans know that. We just do by nature of how we're raised, by going to school, by learning things. And by um, getting stung, right? That's the other thing, yeah, too. Yeah, by getting yeah. stung. and then Because real people would have gotten stung as a child or something and yeah. remembered it, right? Yeah. Yeah, the whole nude page photo of a girl, a young woman. Let's use that. I don't like you know um she because her answer is i should be enough for him there's a point of reference for her she knows um the the intricacies of relationships she knows about it so these questions these answers are specific because she for all intents and purposes is a human being woman whereas if you look at leon's answers he asks him you know you're walking in the desert and there's a tortoise tortoise he doesn't even know what he's talking about. He has no yeah, point so of reference. Yeah. He's, he's lost the entire time. And it's like, he asks him about his mother. My mother? He doesn't probably even know what a mother is. He probably has never even heard that word before. Whereas Rachel is succinct. Boom, boom, boom. On top of her being poised and being focused. And conversely, what's interesting about Rachel is later on, despite her, her implanted memories... All of that doesn't matter when she finds out she's a replicant. So she's then it's like her brain just scrambles emotionally. So it's very, very interesting. And I feel like in this interview with Deckard, Rachel is in control. Deckard is not in control. Rachel is. Yeah. And Tyrell may or may not be. And that's that's the other interesting thing, too, because I'm sure Tyrell assumes that he is in control of this because he's the one who created the cushion for Rachel. But um, but there's a sense that Rachel is almost more more human than human. Right. That there's mm. that there's that she might be in, have more agency than he's aware of, which, of mm. course, she ends up exactly having when she realizes what the truth is. Um, it's also just visually speaking, such an interesting analog to when we see Rachel, you know, next, or when we see her, for example, in Deckard's apartment, because in the, in the Tyrell corporation headquarters, she is so visually perfect, right? Mm. Like this is the first time we see her and she is just immaculate and radiantly beautiful and geometric. And she has her shoulder pads and her hair done up. And, um, and she walks with this incredible poise and purpose. She's just very powerful. And, uh, and of course, when we see her, you know, later in Deckard's apartment, not only is she in this cluttered space with no lighting in it and all this, you know, detritus everywhere, but her hair is all messy. She has this coat on. She's just kind of droopy. Um, she's much more afraid, obviously much more emotional. And uh, so I think part of why Rachel forms such a, an incredible impression on people is really Sean Young's performance of mm. her, especially. And I think it's the way that she's able to telegraph all of that to us with relatively little screen time, because Rachel really isn't in Blade Runner that much compared to other screen of, of six minutes of talking or is it full screen time? It probably might be probably six minutes of dialogue. I, I would imagine there's more screen time than that, but okay. probably not that much more. I mean, she really is very sparingly seen in the film, yeah. but she makes such an impression because of how she telegraphs this stuff through her performance and all of the rest of the movie where Rachel is there and where the stakes really are reliant on us caring about Rachel and caring about their journey together. 
they have to start from the place in Tyrell's office. Like it has to be from a place of power and perfection and what you can do if you can engineer somebody to remember something that never happened, mm. which is such a messed up philosophical concept mm. that I think is really uh, germane to what Blade Runner is and what it becomes in later media. Because of course we have other, I mean, we, we see this revisited quite a bit in the comics, for example, um, but also in 2049, like you were just mentioning, we have Love, who's a very interesting sort of quasi-parallel to Rachel, and it plays out very differently for her. But what's what's different, I think, is that Rachel is the first one, as far as we know, and as far as Deckard knows, the first replicant who doesn't, quote, know what it is. And that's a significant thing. Do you mind if I smoke? It won't affect the test. All right, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just relax and answer them as simply as you can. It's your birthday. Someone gives you a calfskin wallet. I wouldn't accept it. Also, I'd report the person who gave it to me to the police. I would posit that this scene we're discussing is the most iconic scene in the film. Aside from Batty's last... I mean, it's all amazing. It's all iconic. Aside from Batty's um, rooftop soliloquy, this scene is quintessential Blade Runner. And what's curious about Rachel, we've discussed this before when we've had conversations on her specifically as a character, is her presence is so powerful. When we meet her, like you were saying, she's symmetrical. She's perfect. She is... I don't want to say the perfect woman because I don't think perfect... We are all perfect in our own imperfections. But she is iconic because she's just powerful and she's in control of that conversation and she's mysterious the smoke plays into her mysteriousness she's eluding those questions she's kind of answering but not answering she's throwing things back at Deckard um, and she's also seducing us as the audience as well so her fall from that poise is so much more powerful because she's lost what seduced us but we also, as we've discussed before in a prior episode, what seduced us wasn't real. But it was real for her. If someone wouldn't have told her, it would have stayed real for her. So she's lost all of that. She's lost all of her agency, while at the same time, she's regained agency. She's regained objective agency. So she can build herself the way she feels like she should be built. Um, emotionally, psychologically, and all of those things. But this scene, uh, I, it's probably one of the most interesting and atmospheric and beguiling scenes in all of science fiction, for my money. Oh my God, of course. I definitely agree with you on that. And I think it's interesting because not only is it real for Rachel, but it's real for us too. Like we have no, the first time you watch Blade Runner, I mean, for, for many of us, it was when we were kids, so it's kind of hard to remember what that was like. But, but I mean, I'm putting myself in the shoes. I know we have, many, <laughs> we have many listeners who were there at the movie premiere, you know, who remember it vividly. And I'm sure for them, like I know Denny Villeneuve is one of those people who saw it in Montreal in 1982. Like that must have been almost like, uh, you know, Darth Vader coming out as uh, Anakin, like for them. Like that's like such a, a twist, the fact that like she doesn't know who she is. And so like all of this is going to crumble. Um, I guess maybe it's not a twist because you kind of know going into it. But then it's the thing that's so interesting is that you kind of assume, I think, that she's not going to be in the movie anymore, right? Mm. Because it's not really about Rachel. It's about Deckard 
finding these replicants who came back from Mars. So when Rachel shows back up again and she's so human, which is interesting because she doesn't really register as particularly human, quote unquote, when she's interviewing, you know, with Deckard, aside from the fact that like she clearly feels like a person, but she's she's very she's so put together and poised that, you know, there has to be some degree of an act there. Like, you know, when you interact with somebody and you just kind of know that they're semi bullshitting that they have it as together as they do, but you're like, it's, it's okay. Cause it's going to make this interaction easier and I can trust you. But like, I know that if I weren't here right now, like your face would be more relaxed and you'd probably, you know, let your gut out and kind of be sitting down. Like you just, you, you know, that you meet people who, you know, are kind of putting on a show for you. Mm-hmm. Um, we see Rachel after the show ends and that's really the lasting impression that we have of her is who she was outside of that, mm-hmm. which is really significant. And I think it gets at this idea that Blade Runner, part of why it holds up so beautifully to all these repeated viewings of it, is that you can just watch it in so many different ways, depending on what you're looking for and what you're trying to get out of it. You know, um, you can really look at it as Rachel's story too. I think it holds up very well through that and the story of what it means to be lied to, you know, and what it means to, to be told something that wasn't true. And, and what if you believed it? You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection plus the killing jar. I take him to the doctor. You're watching television. Suddenly you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. I'd kill it. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. You show it to your husband. He likes it so much, he hangs it on your bedroom wall. I wouldn't let him. I also want to just go back for a minute. You're talking about the lighting and the smoke and things like that is something that is just, I mean, in a movie full of visual richness and depth, I, I think that this is prop maybe the most visually rich scene in the entire film in terms mm-hmm. of just the amount of masterful cinematography that is going on. Of course, you have Rachel, of course, with this, the, which is like Bryant, the world's smokiest cigarette. Um, and you have the smoke just being beautifully filter lit through the middle of the depth of field. So when she exhales, she's totally obscured by it. And then it just recedes into this vast hallway and you can see her again. Um, you have lighting that I think, I mean, clearly the Wallace headquarters is very much indebted to the Tyrell headquarters visually, and I think intentionally so. But when you watch the 1982 the way you would watch 2017 you start seeing picking up on a lot of other things right so for example the lighting in tyrell's headquarters is almost consistently continuously moving mm-hmm. shimmering like it's reflecting off water or reflecting off some sort of plated surface that's imperfect so it's always moving and it's always kind of shifting and of course wallace's headquarters are, are the epitome of that you also have like i was mentioning earlier the tyrell corporation office although it has a shitload of stuff in it is very expansive like there's not a sense of clutter whatsoever mm-hmm. um the wallace headquarters are like the epitome of that because it's the the largest building you could conceive of like it's way larger than any building that we actually have in our world and yet there's appears to be nothing in it like it must be in the walls and stuff but it really just feels like an empty vessel and again it's this idea of dominion right 
Tyrell and Wallace both declare dominion over the world that they have stayed behind to lord over, right? And the way that they impose that is with geometry, which is so interesting. That like the the most the most gross display of wealth is the display of an unnecessary need to declutter, right? Which is so cool because everybody else out there is is all slamming into each other. And it extends to the sound design too, which I want to just touch on. And of course, I can't think of the sound editor right now. Brain fog. But um, but in Blade Runner, the sound design in the Tyrell building is really stunning. You have that very long reverb with that asymmetric echo when Rachel's walking and, um, you know, when they're having conversations. And of course, it changes because then when they have the conversation about who Rachel really is, should they, you know, Tyrell asks her to, to leave them alone for a moment. Um, or does Deckard ask them to leave them alone? That, that's Tyrell. And they have like a conversation and even though they're being quiet, you can still pick up on the echo a little bit. So there's still a mm. sense of volume mm-hmm. to the space. And uh, just the, the way that that is just mixed and mastered and, and combined with the visual language is really truly sublime. It's also gold, which is so beautiful, right? So it has almost this like a Pharaoh aspect to it. Like it feels like we're watching some Egyptian God almost mm-hmm. like there's such an interesting visual language in that scene. It's right. almost religious. It's almost like a, yeah. a cathedral space. It's sacred. And um, Wallace in his surroundings in 2049 pushed that even further, but it's darker. It's not the same. There's this sacred glow to Tyrell's space, whereas Wallace's space has that in moments, but um, it doesn't have it the way Tyrell has it. Um, what's interesting about this conversation again is is the setup when Deckard comes in and he sits down and you know you hear that when the shade is being drawn you hear it's almost like chimes and the shades are going down it's comforting it's it's as comforting as the um that opening uh logo by what is it the yorkin logo what the lad 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 the lad yoga yoga the lad logo (laughs) (laughs) yolo Um, it has that comforting like we're here, just we're friends. This is a place of peace. This is a place of comfort. But what's happening in that space is very insidious. And the music is not reflecting what's really going on. What's what's going on, what's being presented to, to Deckard is, this is a corporation. This is our look. We, we want you to feel at home here. You know, the, the, the light is, is this golden glow. Everything is great, but then... The actual conversation, the interview, is not any of those things. The interview is unsure of itself. The interview is all over the place. Um, again, I, I, I'm going back to Rachel's answers and why she answered things the way that she answered them. Um, but the, the focus of mind she has, the boom, this is it. Because this, I take him to the doctor. You know, I, I would... She just goes and goes and goes and goes, and there's no hesitation from her. She knows who she is. Yeah, it's hard for me to talk about this whole scene and not want to talk about Rachel again because she's so she's so integral to not just 2019 but to 2049. Um, but conversely, she's fridged in 2049, and she doesn't have a huge role in 2019, and yet the impetus for the whole film is her in some ways. She's the jumping point for before Deckard goes into the rest of it, before he meets Rachel, before he shoots Zora in the back. So when he shoots Zora in the back, he remembers Rachel. When he shoots Pris on the ground, 
He looks at her. You see him looking at her. He remembers Rachel. He starts seeing these people, these replicants as people because he has met a replicant who thought they were a person. This interview sets up the entire, I would say even 2049. This interview sets all of that up. Oh, yeah. Beautifully said. I want to return to that exact point in a second, but I do want to say the other question that we haven't brought up yet is about returning the wallet. Um, and that wallet, do you remember what it's made out of? It's made out of calf skin. So it's, it's still, it's another animal question, which is, which yeah, is really weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, going back though to, uh, to what you're just saying about Decker learning lessons and seeing the faces of the, of the replicants that he's shooting and, and things. I think I have personally made this mistake a lot on this show over the last five years where I really ascribe much of Deckard's journey to batty and i still obviously do and i think that's an that's an okay thing to say but i i I think it's easy to overlook rachel's significance in that the fact that you're right rachel really is written all over the faces of these replicants that he's gunning down because before knowing what happened with rachel before knowing what it was like internally for her to find out the truth uh you know he had a very different conception of what replicants were but that's again that's what's so weird though is that then he has forceful, you know, uh, relations with Rachel, which is also that's that scene is still, I don't know, like I almost want to. We should do an anatomy of the scene on that fucking thing. Oh, for sure. That is like because, yeah, and and we got a lot got a lot of angry mail about that one. That's okay. Uh, but now when you look at that through the lens of what we're talking about today, it's even more painful that he treats her like that. You know, it's it's almost like he's one more person misusing her. But it's and, understandable because, and I say this almost as an aha moment, it's understandable because up until he met Rachel, he only saw replicants. They're, they're either a benefit or a hazard, and she moved in between that space. She wasn't a benefit or a hazard. She was just Rachel. And I think in that moment, in those moments of that scene, not the interview scene, everyone, the scene where he is forceful with her in his apartment, he has to come back and remember this is not um, a machine. This is a person. Yeah. So you see him kind of pull back into himself and like, oh, and he puts his hands up. So I think yeah. that scene is more powerful than I I first read it when we first discussed it. So that's going to be an interesting conversation. And hopefully yeah. we can have Micah on and maybe Carla or other people to really discuss that. Definitely. I, I think, I think you're right. I think that scene is more complicated than it can feel like it is sometimes. And, uh, but, but it's no matter what, it's more powerful because of what we're talking about today, mm, because of like mm. this connection that they're forming and what it means. It's, but it's complicated. And that's, what's great about Blade Runner is it's just, mm. it's an unendingly complicated thing. So, you know, I think, uh, we could probably wrap, but, um, I, unless you have anything else to add, I, I think this is just one of the great scenes in the film. You're watching a stage play. A banquet is in progress. The guests are enjoying an appetizer of raw oysters. The entree consists of boiled dog. Would you step out for a few moments, Rachel? Thank you. I'd say the last thing that I would add, again, using that interview as a jumping off point for the rest of the film, uh, there's a quote by Elie Wiesel, 
hopefully I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name. You save one when you save one life, you save the world entire. And what happened with Deckard is he saved one life. It altered the way he looked at everyone else from that point on. Even though he, for all intents and purposes, killed people. And then Rachel ends up killing someone too, which you see fucks her up. She is not the same. She's yeah. not even the same when she goes back to his apartment after she killed Leon. She killed one of her own kind. And you could see that horror all over her face. But for Deckard, she saved his life. But again, he saved one life. And that act right there changed him. And he has, and it's, yeah, yeah, it, it's fascinating. Yeah, I think it saved him too, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, last thing I'll say before we close is, this is, of course, uh, a scene that's also in the book, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. And the way it's presented in the book is similar to this, but in interesting ways it deviates. So if you haven't read the book in a while, um, I recommend you check it out. It's, uh, of course, it's Rachel Rosen in the book and Dr. Rosen. And Rachel is sort of present for the conversation about whether she's a replicant or not. So the way it plays out is very different. But uh, but again, it's an interesting little angle into this thing that has evolved over time because of all the people that have touched it. And at the center of all that is Sean Young, again, who just gave us this masterful performance and played off of uh, Harrison Ford in such a fascinating way. And I think, uh, I think it's really a performance for the ages and it's a sequence for the ages. And I'm glad that we have an excuse to talk about it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back. Thank you. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www dot blade runner forward slash support thank you